Hello and welcome to Not So Molly Mormon Podcast. Hello, you guys, and welcome back. This is Sarah. And this is Katie. And this is our 95th episode. (gasps) Are you joking? I'm not joking. Isn't that pretty amazing? I didn't know if we would get this far, and here we are. Wow, you guys, my mind is blown right now. 95. Yeah, that's close to should we I feel like for our 100th episode we should go big we should but how big what are you talking I mean like Joseph Smith 14 16 whatever many wives big (laughs) you know what I mean Brigham Young 55 wives (laughs) yeah exactly yeah (laughs) all right we got it we got some planning to do then we gotta hold up (laughs) Woo! Oh my god, I can't believe we have 90. You guys, I know we talk about this every time, and you're probably like, oh my god, we've heard it. You just thought you would have one listener and their cat, blah, blah, blah. But it's so true. Like, when Katie and I started, I, I'm i a bit of a pessimist, let's just be honest. And so I was like, yeah, we'll record one or two episodes, and then we'll probably get bored of it, or like, no one's going to pay attention, or no one's going to like even listen so we'll just stop like a few episodes in I cannot believe it has been almost three years and not almost I mean we're only in October not even beginning of October but like in February it'll be three years yeah that's That's time time has gone by really quickly and also slowly it's been a strange time but I've really loved making this podcast with you Sarah like not to get mushy but it's just been really good for me personally and I've really enjoyed hearing feedback from all of you that listen I feel like I've genuinely formed friendships and relationships with all of you I know that sounds cheesy but I don't care because this has really been a cool project and experience for me and so I'm looking forward to continue doing this as long as we have content which I feel like we will never run out of (laughs) (laughs) exactly I I've 100% as cliche I can't speak today as cheesy and cliche as it sounds like I feel the same like I'm so lucky that we have this podcast together and that I have a great co-host who's the best um but really like it's it's just such an amazing thing to be a part of and also what you're saying like even we've gotten so many messages from you guys that are just heartwarming and honestly each time we get one saying like your podcast helped us in whatever way I my heart feels like it's going to explode and it's like the motivation I need to keep going even when we're like God, it's like it's a Monday. I'm tired from work. I don't want to record. I'm not in the mood. I'm not in the mood to be funny. I'm not (laughs) in the mood. And then it's like, no, we do this for a reason. And yeah, it's just, it's incredible. So it is. Well, speaking of um, messages, I wanted to just have one little announcement about our messages. Uh, So, As you guys know, we love when you write to us. So please email us your stories. And what we've been doing, I don't know if maybe not all of you listen, but I make mini episodes reading your stories. And most of the time, I don't say the name of the person unless they give me consent or they want their name read. So that's 
mostly what our email is used for is for you to send in your stories and then I share them. So I want to reiterate that if you want to share your story, um, send it to me or or Sarah, both of us. (laughs) Um, But if you don't want me to read it on air, you need to please expressly (laughs) tell me that because I will have no way of knowing. So if you don't want it read, if you just want to vent to us and tell us your story, please at the beginning uh, right. Please don't put this in an episode and I won't. So I just want to put that out there so that everyone is very clear on what the emails are for. OK, <laughs> exactly. And I yeah, just to support Katie even more, um, oh. of course, like we again and, and to be fair, maybe I have been unclear when I say send us your stories, send us your stories. We love to hear them because we do. We genuinely love to hear them, even though most of the time they're really sad because they're, you're talking about really personal tragedies that you've had in your life from the church caused by the Mormon church. So when I say we're happy to hear about them, it's more like we relate to it. We yeah. feel you. We want to support you, like all the things. Um, so please continue to send them. We just want to make sure it's clear that if you don't want Katie to record a mini episode on it just you know let us know in the beginning or even just somewhere in the email yeah say like please this is just more for your benefit or we just wanted to tell you whatever but don't put this on air because at the end of the day like it is Katie's time and energy and effort that's going into recording these mini episodes so if we publish them we want them to stay because you know we put in time and effort and we also want people to hear your stories so we don't want to have to go back and like you know take them down or whatever which we understand shit happens but it's fine not not a problem yeah just as a disclaimer for future just to be perfectly clear yeah um but yeah, not not a problem. It's not a big no. deal. We just want to, you know, going forward, because we're all about communication and clear oh, communication. communication. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah. So point being, still send us your stories. We love them, even if you don't want them on air. It's still great to read. And if we take three months to respond, please don't take it personally. It's just because we have so many dms coming in in different directions and sometimes they get hidden in these folders that i don't even know exist like i just found out the other day we have a primary folder i know what is that i don't even even know about this i'm not savvy with this stuff but we tried (laughs) we try our best we We try our best um Um, i have one other little like announcement kind of thing i want to share before we get into the episode so this past weekend I went on a lovely, cute little getaway to the tiniest town I've ever visited uh, to get out of the city, city, and it was called Heber Overgard, Arizona, and I found out that it was named after Heber C. Kimball of Mormonism. Yeah, so if you don't know, you guys, that's an early apostle. I guess he helped found the city. And it's really tiny. It's super quaint. We just had a cabin up there. It was so lovely. (laughs) But it was definitely the most conservative and right-wing town I've ever experienced. (laughs) Um, And there's hardly anyone that lives there, but there is a Mormon church, of course. And then all along the roads and on people's cars and on the one grocery store in town, 
everything was pro-Trump. Um, <gasps> and <laughs> so it just got me thinking that I wanted to ask all of you listeners, please vote. Like if, because I know that these people in this tiny little town are all going to be voting for Trump and that's their right and that's fine. But if we all can just please vote and I, because I don't want to endure four more years of him, please, Celestial Jesus. So this is my PSA. If you do anything this week, please register to vote and let's get him out of office. Also, along those lines, um, if you're living in Arizona, on the ballot this year is a proposition for recreational marijuana. And the church, of course, has Ugh. come out and said that members should vote against it. And I hate it so much. They need to stay out of politics. But if you live in Arizona, that's on the ballot. And I think, I mean, no matter your feelings on marijuana or whatever, it would be good for our economy if it was legalized recreationally and I just think it's a good thing to vote on I mean of course you do you you vote however you want but please just vote that's my request to you all (laughs) exactly kudos I'm glad I feel like you know we've we haven't gone into as many details with the current situation happening around the world um not because we don't feel as strongly as we did before but we thought okay it's taking a lot of like mental energy on people and it's you know we just want to do a bit more uplifting and uplifting that's such a mormon word a bit more like (laughs) fun light-hearted topics um but at the same time we don't want to come across as we just don't give a fuck anymore and that's not the case like we didn't jump on just a fad to be like right yeah this is what we're going to write on um And actually, before Katie even brought this up, this was something I wanted to talk about, too, the importance of voting and especially with everything that's going on in the world right now. And, you know, I hate to break it to people who don't know this, but black lives still matter, will always matter. Um, The the horrible situation with Breonna Taylor and the verdict that happened with that and the fact that those cops weren't even charged with murder they were charged with damaging property from the neighbor like I I just can't like it, it makes me sick I there was just a day the day that I found out the verdict and how the case ended I just felt sick to my stomach and I just it made me sad I had the sides and this is again coming from a very privileged person a white person who has never even experienced racism so I can't even fathom and I never will be able to fathom what that must feel like to have to experience it and then to hear the news about you know these people who are tragically people of color who are tragically murdered by police officers and then the police officers aren't charged with murder like I just want to openly, again, bring that up. And if people want to argue and say that, you know, the cops didn't did announce them, what I just can't Uh, hear anymore. I I showed you those screenshots. You guys, I got in a very heated argument with a Mormon person about this simply because I was calling out the tragedy and they were trying to defend the people, the cops who murdered Breonna Taylor. And, you know, I'm just. I I ended up blocking that person. I'm not about to even engage anymore with those kinds of things because it's inhumane, honestly. It is. Yeah. It is. And also with the new 
appointed, um, oh God, no, oh, the justice. Yeah. yeah, and how I just, I read up on her today, and she's, like, the mother of seven children, which is fine, whatever, but, like, her stance on abortion and Planned Parenthood, and basically someone described it as what Ruth, every door that Ruth opened, she walked in behind just so that she could close it. It's honestly so heartbreaking. It uh. really is. So point being, anyway, so, and yeah. if, if anyone is actually overseas and need help figuring out how to vote abroad, you can reach out to me. I don't know how many of our listeners are Americans living overseas, but I went through the process. In fact, I, I mailed off my ballot last week. Good so super job. excited. I was telling Greg, I was like, oh, when I mailed it off, I was like, oh, I don't get a sticker that says I voted. <laughs> But you need to just make yourself your own sticker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if anyone needs help with that, because it is, it's really annoying. It was a very complicated process. It was very stressful. It's like, you know, the U.S. government makes it as difficult as possible for people to vote and to vote from overseas. It was just like, I, it was really annoying and frustrating. Um, but I wasn't going to give up. I was like, fucking Trump, you're not going to get the best of me. I'm going to vote no matter what. Good so for you. Good job. <sighs> yeah. But anyways, moving on, you guys, guess what? I um, am so excited, you guys, because, yes, Sarah is going to tell me a story today. I'm telling the story, you guys. I don't know. I'm really nervous because I have big shoes to fill. We all know that Katie's a great storyteller. She does the research properly. I was like a bit anxious about it. Thinking, you are going like, to do so. I'm going to fuck it up. Whatever. You're going to do so great. I'm here for it. I'm I'm ready. I am sitting cross-legged, crisscross applesauce. <laughs> I have my water bottle and my coffee, and I have a bunch of pillows around me. I am so ready for story time. Oh, my God. And it's it's a okay. So before we even get into it, I do want to say um, trigger warning like this is a true crime episode. So I'm telling a story, a true crime that happened in the U.S. It involves like pretty horrific stuff. And it also involves children. So it's very graphic. It's gruesome. I didn't, I almost couldn't even finish researching it because it just made me sick to my stomach. And I thought, I don't want to know these things. But I also find that it's really important that we do talk about this because it's something that is still occurring in the Mormon community and it needs to be addressed. Um, it's, yeah, okay. it's very brutal. Um, so again, I repeat, like, do not listen to this episode if it's going to be triggering. I'll even put it in biblical terms. Halt, thou shalt not pass. Like, <laughs> do not <laughs> go further in this episode. Halt. <laughs> halt. Um, so I just want to put that out there now. So if you're listening, you've made it this far, you can now turn it off if you don't want to listen. Okay. So okay. I'm pausing a bit so that people can turn it off in time. All right, cool. So... This week, I'm telling the story of author Gary Bishop. Okay, author so I'm just Gary gonna, Bishop? yeah, okay. I just call him Bishop for the the rest of the episodes so that everyone knows. Bishop is Arthur Gary Bishop. Okay. okay, 
Um, so I came across him because originally I had this idea with Katie or so Katie is great and always like organizes our schedule and our podcast topics. And so every week she's like, Hey, what day? Hey, what topic? And I'm like, Oh shit, that's another week has gone by. We should probably schedule things. And (laughs) I was like, Ooh, let's do one on famous Mormons because I just think it's interesting when you're watching TV and you, I am the type of person who, when we watch a show, I if I don't know the actor or actress, I like immediately Google them and find out their whole life story and their connection, yeah. and I go down a rabbit hole. And yeah. if they're Mormon, I'm like, oh my god, I knew it! You know, it's like <laughs> that explains so much. Um, so that's how it started. So I was looking at those, and then I was like, oh, I actually want to do a true crime episode, but I think we've covered them all, so I'm not going to even try. And then I got down a rabbit hole, and I found this dude. So. Mm-hmm. Before I begin to, I'm going to list my little cited sources because I'm such an academic. Such Just an kidding, academic. I'm not. Um, <laughs> it came from Wikipedia and Murderpedia. So, Murderpedia, yes. Yes. So all of my information is from these two. Okay, so to start off. So old Bishop, he was born in Hinkley, Utah. Do you know where that is? Uh, no, but I just, it's a Mormon name. So I yep. was like. Wait, is it? I'm gonna guess that it's in southern Utah. Yes. So it is a tiny desert town with less than 700 residents. Oh my god! It's about 100 miles southwest of Salt Lake City. Okay. And it's in um, Millard County. I don't know if that means anything. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. So he was born in Hinkley, Utah. He's the oldest of six brothers. So seven boys all together, and he is the oldest. Wolf. Exactly. And he was raised as a devout Latter-day Saint, parentheses, Mormon. (laughs) (laughs) That's a win for the devil when you use that. Exactly. So he was born, so this was in 1951. So the crimes that take place are in the late 70s, 80s, which is always like, the 80s were just known for serial killers, like, I don't know what it was about that decade, but... I don't know how people survived the 60s, 70s, and 80s when I learn about all of the stuff that killers got away with because they couldn't be traced like they can be now. There was so much of it happening. Exactly. Um, Okay, so before I get into his early life, I think it's interesting that I was reading through... Because you guys, I do research now. Um, I was reading through all of the information and at the end, so this is what a defense attorney, so I'm kind of jumping, I'm doing like the cool Netflix where like you start from the end and then talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the defense attorneys described Gary Bishop, so Arthur Gary Bishop, as a lonely, frightened child. So that was the defense claim, but there's no fact that validates that. But then he had all of these like, friends from school come out and say later on like decades later on Mormon websites and stuff like that saying that he was a geek and this is a quote a geek rarely if ever finding someone who would accept the offer of a date oh Oh. yeah um his election to serve as business manager for the student council was no indication of popularity this same classmate said a tradition that went on to vote a nerd to student council as a joke to humble 
the social elite during the coming years. Okay. So apparently growing up, he was just like a loner and a loser. This is again, though, this is based on like classmates years later saying stuff. So who knows how true it is. And then I want you just to remember this little fact because we're going to get to it in the end. His younger brother, Douglas Bishop, who was born in 1956, really looked up to his older brother, Arthur. Okay. Oh, God, this isn't going to be good. No. So okay. three decades later, you'll find out more about him as well. Oh, okay. Shit. Okay. So now I'm going to go back to his life. So in 1969, he graduates from high school and he follows, you know, the normal protocol for a good Mormon boy. He serves as a missionary in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So he okay. served there for two years. He came back like he served a full time mission. He came home, does a second, you know, like Mormon thing. He graduates from college i think it's called stevens henniger college oh yes that's so utah i still remember those commercials oh see i didn't know what it was but that's so yeah. funny i was like katie's gonna know all of these utah references I yeah <laughs> yeah um okay so he he graduated there with um on a business track like sorry so this is a business school but he graduated mm-hmm. on the fast track So he was like quite smart, like he completed all the courses with top notch grades, like he was on top of shit, right? So he graduates with his diploma in accounting, like he's he goes on to his first job. And the first time that he has issues with the the law is in 1978. So about 10 years after he graduates from high school. Okay. And what happened had nothing to do with children or anything heinous to begin with. He worked at a used car dealership and he was a bookkeeper. Okay. Um, and he worked there for a year before and then he was in- accused of embezzling $8,714. Oh, that's very precise. Exactly. $14. <laughs> yeah, down to like, not like 8000 it's like $8,714. Yeah, wow. Um, was this in, was he in Utah still? Yeah, this is okay. still in Utah. Okay. So all of his friends, his family, everyone was shocked because they're like, oh, he's such a great um, Mormon guy. He's so righteous, blah, blah, blah. This doesn't make sense, so whatever. Um, he does plead guilty and he is like he's um, charged with a five year suspended jail sentence. Okay. And in return, if he does like the full restitution, so in return for a promise of full restitution, like, so basically he would have been fine. He just had to, to hold out the five year suspended jail sentence and pay back the money. Right. right. So he so agrees he would- to. Sorry. And so that means he doesn't have to go actually into prison, right? No, he, no, no. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So he agrees to it, and he seems sincere, and then he becomes a fugitive. So he <gasps> runs away. So he agrees to it, oh. and then he runs away. Oh. And for the next five years, he starts just living under a different name, right? <gasps> For that's not even that's such a small reason to run away. It feels I like know. I mean you can pay that back. You just work and pay that back, and then go on with your life. Yep. Nope. So he runs away, and oh, so, 
this is not looking good. Okay. I know. It, it gets crazier. So he runs away and he goes, but he didn't go like that far. He he still remained in Salt Lake City. Oh. So it's not like he like went across. Trying. No, he's like not even trying. He doesn't even go like out of the state, much less like yeah, out of the country or across the states. Like he just he he just goes to Salt Lake City, so like a few hours north. Um and then he, he changes his name to Roger W. Downs. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. And then he uses that name to join the Big Brother program. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah. Which, if for those of you who don't know, it's this program where you basically have, like, an older mentor for younger boys. And you work closely with young boys so this put him in the situation where he would be together and always around children, especially little boys. Uh, and this is in the 80s, right? So it's like yeah. probably more difficult for them to check his background, perhaps, or like run his exactly. thing or whatever they do for criminal background checks. now I hope they do, but I'm sure it was different back then. Yeah, but it even says, this is a little tip for the future, but it does say that Big Brother, Big Sister organization later admitted that they received tips that Downs, who is Arthur Gary Bishop, Bishop, had molested at least two children while enrolled in their program, but neither were his assigned little brother, but they still happen. And the accusations were allegedly reported to police, but nothing happened. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, no. Exactly. So (sighs) then in 1978, so we have 77 is when he is caught embezzling money and he runs away. And then he joins Big Brother in Salt Lake City. And then in 1978, so this is all within a year, the Mormon church excommunicated him. Why? Yeah. They basically said because he didn't he was like a fraud and he embezzled money so of course the church will excommunicate you if you molest children they'll just like hide it up like cover it up but if you take money and probably from a mormon then they'll excommunicate you because it's all about money for them that's what i highlighted in my notes oh true because for all those other quote-unquote sins or or bad things people do there's repentance Right. Yep. But when it comes to embezzling and fleeing, then you're excommunicated. Interesting. Yep. OK, <laughs> exactly. OK, so he's excommunicated in 1978. And now if you fast forward to 1979, he's still living in Salt Lake City. He's living in an apartment complex. And on October 14th, 1979, Four-year-old Alonzo Daniels was playing in the courtyard of his apartment when he vanished without a trace. Oh, no. Alonzo. I know. So, again, you guys, this is really hard to stomach, but I think it's important to talk about. So, basically, the mother begins, like, he, he goes missing. The mother obviously gets really concerned, so she calls over relatives to help search for him They don't find them. So then they call the police who go door to door. They're asking questions. 
And they start asking the neighbors in the apartment complex, which one was Roger Downs. Okay. Also, Roger Downs. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Is Arthur Gary Bishop. And they, they basically met him. I think he was one of the first few people they interviewed and their questions were routine and he denied any knowledge of the boy's whereabouts. Okay. So at this point, the officers have no way of knowing that Alonzo at this point was already dead when oh. they reached the apartment complex. Oh. Yeah. And we know all of these stories, like the details of what happened because, okay, I'm not going to jump into that. So basically what happened is Bishop lured him from the courtyard with the promise of candy. Oh, no, it's a, it's classic. That's yeah. so tragic. Oh, boy. it's a classic candy one. So then Alonzo follows him and into his living room. And, and this is the part that, again, maybe skip ahead if you don't want to know the details, but it's pretty horrific. He molests him. Um, and then when the boy starts to cry and he has like these sobbing threats that he wants to tell his mother, Bishop clubs him with a hammer to oh, stop no. him from crying. Oh. And then he carries him into the bathtub and drowns him. Oh no! Oh, it's so sickening. He, it's, the little boy Alonzo was there in his apartment when the police were talking to Bishop yeah. at the door. Yeah. <gasps> oh, I just got chills. Yep. And then this is the part that's even more sickening. So, after he murders Alonzo, four-year-old Alonzo, he stuffs him into a large cardboard box and carries it out to his car past Alonzo, Alonzo's mother, who was calling out for his name. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. What a... Ew. Exactly. So then, by late afternoon, Salt Lake County's search and rescue team had joined all the family members on the search to look for Alonzo Daniels. Even civilians, like hundreds of civilians, they pitched in to help, which also were like students from University of Utah, like all these different people. And there were photos of Alonzo and descriptions of his clothing, which I thought just like tore my heart apart. He was wearing a t-shirt with the words chocolate, lime, and vanilla printed on it. Oh my God. I know. Um, So police questioned hundreds of people, but no one knew what was going on. And by night, so by the nighttime, so all of this is happening from, like, basically the beginning of the day. And then by the afternoon, he was already, unfortunately, and saddening. Like, he was murdered and put into the trunk of Bishop's car. And Bishop drove the box corpse to Cedar Fort, which, for those of you who aren't familiar with the area, that's about 20 miles southwest of Salt Lake City. And he buried him in the des- in the desert. Oh. So that was first victim that makes me so pissed off that he got away with it because or with that one because so many people were looking I mean it's almost like his timing was just very quote-unquote lucky you know Mm -hmm. because that seems like he could have been caught really easily and it makes me so upset that he Mm -hmm. just buried that poor boy Oh, oh get get ready for your anger to get even more Okay. It's going right. to, like, basically, yeah, your head's going to feel like it's going to explode. Um, so the year after he killed Alonzo Daniels, Bishop 
basically, as most of the serial killers, you learn, like, once they kill once, they they get these crazy, intense urges to do it again. Mm-hmm. So he was a bit scared of getting caught. So instead of children, he went to killing puppies. <gasps> yeah. No, Sarah. I know. Oh, no. So... He adopted 15 to 20 from Salt Lake City animal shelters over the next 13 months. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No. And he used them as surrogates for children. And he even there's a quote that he told the detective later on. It was so, quote, it was so stimulating. A puppy whines just like Alonzo did. I would get frustrated at the whining. I would hit them with hammers or drown them or strangle them. I hate this person so much. Yep. It's absolutely disgusting. So then, um, because the next part is I was like, well, how did his neighbors not notice about him having a different puppy every month? Yeah. Before? And apparently Bishop's neighbors never seemed to notice. Um, they didn't think that he had any cruelty to animals Nothing like that. Um, you guys, but, watch your neighbors. If they're bringing yes. home a new dog every single month and it's a puppy, you know, and you're not seeing where the other one went, that person is an animal abuser, animal killer. Yikes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so after 13 months of, oh, he's so nasty, of killing puppies, which is just so sad. Oh, he felt like it wasn't satisfying his urges enough, which is what he told the detective. So he continued to molest children sporadically. Um, He would use charms or threats to prevent them from saying anything to anyone. Um, But then again, that just wasn't enough. He, He felt like he needed to kill. Like, so he would, so he would molest children, but then let them go by by threatening, right. you don't yeah. tell anyone or I'll kill your family or whatever. They, they Exactly. Say. Yeah. Oh, okay. So oh. on Saturday, November 8th, 1980, so this is about a year, a little over a year from his first murder of Alonzo Daniels. He's Daniel. done so mon- much evil in that one year. Oh, so much evil. So Ew. much evil. Um, 11-year-old Kim Peterson met Bishop at a Salt Lake City rolling roller skating rink. So basically, he upped his tactics from Candy because this is an 11-year-old boy. So Candy's not going to really do it for him. You know, he's, he's, right. he's smarter, he's older. Not smarter, but just older and more mature. So he is selling... So Peterson, Kim Peterson, the 11-year-old boy, is selling a pair of skates for $35. And Bishop says, oh, yeah, I'm interested. I'll pay for them. Um, Just come over to my apartment and I'll, you know, I'll grab the the skates and pay you $35. So Peterson, yeah, Peterson tells his parents that he's just going to sell his skates. He'll be home, blah, blah, blah. Of course, he never made it home. So his parents called the police. Um after, and that was like just a few hours after. So basically, when he didn't turn home for dinner, his parents called the police, which was good for the 80s. That's I felt like <laughs> really, that's really quick to yeah, to exactly. do that. That's good. I mean, oh, those poor parents. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. So 
The police come, they start doing another search, they go to the skate rink and they're asking people, okay, have did you see Kim talking to anyone? And several witnesses recalled a youth of Peterson's description talking with a man aged 25 to 35, full face with glasses, wearing blue jeans and an army style jacket or parka. And okay. two of the witnesses agreed to even be hypnotized um, to, to see if they could come up with more description <laughs> of the man. Oh, the 80s. (laughs) I know, the 80s. And one skater claimed the man had driven away in a silver Chevy Camaro with an out-of-state license. But basically, all the leads were useless. Like, the police saw no similarity or um, anything, like, familiar or anything that they could tie down to Roger Downs. I wish so bad. I wish there was um, surveillance at that roller rink. I know, right? Because then it would have shown him, yeah, who Roger Downs or AKA whatever his name is, Bishop. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing with the 80s and why serial killers like got away with so many because they didn't have that technology at the time. Mm -hmm. Or if they did, not many places did because it was so Right. Because this is the other thing is that. Roger Downs, a.k.a. Arthur Gary Bishop, was living in an apartment just several blocks from Kim Peterson's home <gasps> and close to the skate rink. But again, they, que- uh, they the cops questioned him again a second no, time. Really? <gasps> yeah. Wow. But they make no connection to the Dan- to Alonzo Daniels case. Yeah, I guess if there's no evidence connecting the two, it could be seen as just a year apart to tragic disappearances in the same neighborhood. But I don't know. To me, it's like, oh, two young boys have gone missing from the exact same neighborhood. There might be a predator around. Yeah. Nope. And the fact that they questioned him twice and didn't even make the connection is just like mind blowing to me. But it also kind of, this is a sidebar. This makes me think of the show True Detective. I haven't watched it. Oh, it's so good. Everyone watch the first season. It's brilliant. It's amazing. But it's a lot of this whole cops and and Greg and I talk about this because it's it's very much a U.S. thing where you have these jurisdictions and cases just don't overlap, even though they should. And departments don't communicate across counties and cities, even though if they would like they would be able to catch a lot more killers because they would have matching like similar details and descriptions and cases. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, um, so yeah, so basically Arthur Gary Bishop on, uh, what was the date again? Sorry guys, I got sidetracked. November 8th, 1980. He also, so once he leads, Um, Kim Peterson to his house and says oh I'm going to sell you the skates obviously he doesn't he does the same method where he basically beats them and then drowns them and then he buried his corpse near Alonzo's outside of Cedar Fort victims I think it's so bizarre with serial killers that I mean it's just so strange that they're these little tiny children and it's obviously awful and terrible that you would kill them anyway, but it's like overkill to be- beat them basically to death yes. and, then, and then drown them. Like, it's just, they're, I can never understand it, obviously, but it's, yeah. 
It's uh, just horrendous. Like, he yeah. molests them for, he sexually assaults them, <sighs> and then he, like, kills them in such a horrendous way. It's just, it's disgusting. Yeah. Um, okay, so 11 months passed. So this is now October 20th, 1981. Okay. So Bishop is going through a local supermarket. He's just browsing. And then to quote him, so he tells this to the detectives later on, and it's quoted in Deseret News. I saw the most beautiful little boy kneeling in the aisle. Okay. Oh, you know what? He can fuck right off. I know. It's absolutely disgusting. So it's four-year-old Danny Davis, and he was standing in front of the, you know, those little gumball machines? Oh, yeah. Uh He was just trying to get a piece of candy without paying. You know how you, like, stick your hand up there and you, like, (laughs) try to get candy, blah, blah, blah. So then he, like... So Bishop notices this, goes over to him and actually offers some candy, but Danny refuses. So Bishop is like, all right, whatever. He's like, I'm going to leave the store then. And as he's walking out, he looks back and he sees that Danny's actually just trailing behind him because he's a four year old. He's probably like, oh, yeah, he offered me candy. Maybe I want. So, you know, he like follows him. And right when he does that. Bishop basically waits for the boy and like tempts him to come forward, like tells him like, Oh, come here. Just like, look at, I got candy, whatever. So he comes to the parking lot and Bishop grabs him and puts him in the car. Yeah. And Danny's grandmother, when she finished her shopping is super alarmed because she thought he was just beside her while she was checking out or by the gumball machine. And she looks up and sees that he's gone so she calls the store's manager and, and then the employees and customers, everyone starts searching. And How then several. Yeah. Like, can you he imagine being a grandma? Like, oh, no. And to do that in broad daylight, there's all these other shoppers and employees all around. Like, that's crazy. But that's yeah. what they kind of say that basically the arrogance of serial killers is what ends up getting them caught because they yeah. do just like they kill once or twice and then they get super cocky and think, oh, I can do this wherever. Yeah. Um, and like I'm unstoppable. So anyway, so then um, everyone's out there searching and actually several shoppers, they say that they saw this little boy, Danny, with a smiling young man. Mm. Okay, but they couldn't identify any more descriptions about this guy. Ah, come yeah. on, people. <laughs> exactly. So basically the cops are left with nothing because they're like, okay, you know, some people are even saying that they saw Danny leave with a man and a woman. Some people are saying he just left with a man. So the cops are a bit like, uh, okay, so. They start, you know, again, like civilians, everyone, they start going and and fanning out across the desert and mountains, like desperately searching for Danny. And of course, if anyone is from Utah or out west, like temperatures drop quite drastically overnight. Mm -hmm. And at that time, Danny was last seen just wearing a T-shirt and blue jeans and some flip flops, basically. So they're getting a bit, like, by this time, you know, everyone's frightened, and then they even start to dig in, or, like, sorry, to have divers go into Big Cottonwood Creek, which is just east of the town, apparently. I don't know the geography, but that's what I have notes written down. That's correct, yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So they start, like, you know, 
digging through the ponds, like diving, just to see if maybe somehow he fell into the pond. And actually, the hunt for Danny Davis became the most intensive search in Salt Lake County history. Wow. Yeah. So flyers were printed with the missing boy's photo, copies sent to law enforcement agencies throughout the U.S. There was even a $20,000 reward for information but and calls for help to the FBI, Child Find, and National Crime Information Center, but nothing produced useful leads. Mm. And then here's the other part. Roger Downs, a.k.a. Arthur Gary Bishop, resided half a block from the market where Danny disappeared. Oh, my God. So, once again, the police show up at his door, knock on the door to do their routine questions, and he has nothing to contribute. No one realized that the same clueless neighbor, I'm doing quotes from this um, Murderpedia, same clueless neighbor had lived in close proximity to vanished victims Alonzo Daniels, Kim Peterson, and now Danny. Wow. Right? Um, and Did then, you know well, how you know how there are those witnesses at the roller rink that gave a description? Did yep. that description fit Bishop at all? I mean, I yeah. get he's he's a male and he was around those ages, yeah. Yeah, like whenever I looked up because they said he's around two hundred pounds, like how he looked a bit like he was always smiling and like a bit geeky. Like when you see his picture, that's what he looks like. You would so think I'm a bit I mean, not a cop, obviously, but you would just think that you'd at that point, since it's all so close, like right in that same block area, you just take all of the men that look like that and look into them really deep. I mean, I guess I know that that's easier said than done. But in my head, I'm like, wow, it was all so close. Around exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's when I read it, I was just like, oh, my God, like, how could they not? And, and the fact that they questioned him three times, like, were was there really this lack of communication or were they just the horrible cops? Like, what was it? Like, I, for us, it seems so obvious, right? Right. Um, so, yeah. So by the time that the police went to Bishop and questioned him, Danny Davis was already dead. So, yeah, and this, again, he, so horrible. So he molested Danny first, and then he murdered him by pinching his nostrils and covering his mouth until he suffocated. No. Really horrible. And the very next day, on that Wednesday, he made yet another trip to Cedar Fort, where he buried his third victim alongside the other two. So are they all right by each other? Yeah, they're all buried right beside each other. Yeah, it's like if they were just at least watching, if they had someone watching Gary Bishop, they might see him after every time a little boy goes missing, he's taking a trip a few hundred miles south, and they might, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No. Yeah. But they don't. And at this point, too, which I thought was interesting. So this is from Murderpedia. They give a lot of historical background at the time, which is there was so much happening in this time period. Like like you mentioned, the 60s, 70s, 80s was just like madhouse with especially serial killers. Totally. Um, by the time. Um, so state legislators in Utah 
were just basically in a state of panic because of these disappearances. Because they had already these three children who had disappeared. And then a fourth one was a three-year-old named Rachel Runyon, I believe it's pronounced. And Mm -hmm. she was kidnapped from a school playground in Sunset, about 30 miles north of Salt Lake City in 1982. And that's when, like, the public outcry was just it was loud right so everyone is just like fear they have panic they're calling local politicians telling them they need to do more they need to pass another law and that was when so first degree murder was already a capital crime in utah but Mm -hmm. then the legislators um they basically went on so they were ranked on among the strictest in the nation in terms of child abduction Mm-hmm. So, depending on the circumstances of giving kidnapping, convicted abductors face mandatory 5, 10, or 15-year prison terms for their crime. Um, but basically, everyone in Utah was like, okay, that doesn't do anything. Like, you need to find this, like, child killer that's going around and kidnapping our children and murdering them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sorry, let me um, oh, right. The sacrifice. So this is also I find interesting because, you know, during the 80s, there was that like satanic fear. Like everyone was like people are Satan worshipers and are satanic and it's a cult. And, you know, <laughs> I was going to ask you about this. I was going to say it's it's feeling the, the way that you're describing it. It's feeling very much like the satanic panic that was happening all across the U.S. where anything bad that happened to children, they would attribute to Satan. Satan worshippers, yeah. and um, I actually did a little mini episode about this on Patreon just a couple weeks ago. That was really interesting, like involving Mormonism and the Satanic Panic in the '80s. So I was, I was hoping you were gonna mention that because it sounded very similar. Yeah, exactly, and that's what it was. Like apparently, people were calling in, and it was like this statewide like fear and panic, and they were saying. They call it the sacrifice theory, which I'd never heard, where it's like they would kidnap, basically, like, they were saying that rumors are going around saying, oh, this is a a cult motive and the crimes and that, like, boys are being kidnapped within the week of Halloween. Um, And it's like the sacrifice theory that they would kidnap these kids on Halloween and then murder them because they were satanic. Yeah, yeah, that sounds so familiar. And it's it's probably easier for people to grasp that idea, you know, make this evil satanic cult the ones that are capturing our kids versus just this kind of nerdy looking neighbor down the street. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So anyway, so basically, so this child doesn't have anything like so Rachel Runyon doesn't have anything to do with Roger Downs, but it's still this to set the scene, this like statewide pandemic of pandemic of panic of everyone is scared that their kid's going to be kidnapped or murdered or go disappearing. So the political um, spark around all of this is quite big too. And yeah. in the end, unfortunately, like the case of this little girl, Rachel was closed. It was cold by June 23rd, 1983. Oh, that's so yeah, it's really sad. Okay. So now we're moving down or up in the years. So now we come to, unfortunately, his fourth victim. Oh. Okay. So 
Troy Ward, he turned six years old. It was on his sixth birthday. Which oh, my is God. Devastating. Oh. Um, he was in a park celebrating his birthday. He asked if he could play by himself at the park. His parents said, sure. But we want to make sure that our family friend picks you up at 4 p.m. They told him where to pick him up, which is at the corner. And then the friend was going to drive him home where he had presents and a birthday cake waiting. Okay. So okay. by four o'clock, the friend, the family friend shows up and he can't find Troy anywhere. So he starts to panic a bit and thinks, okay, maybe he went home and just didn't tell anyone. So he drove off and went home. And once he got there, he realized, okay, he's not there either. And he hadn't come home from the park. So again, police are called at once. And everyone starts, you know, searching the streets. And then one witness said that she saw Troy, like a boy's description of Troy, leaving the scene with a man on foot a few minutes prior to 4 p.m. The man and boy had seemed at ease with one another. So the witness assumed it was father and son. Mm. Yeah. And of course, this man was Arthur Gary Bishop. He repeated his horrible horrible oh god um just tragic thing of molesting them and then brutally beating them until he drowns them in the bathtub um but he actually did tell the detective later on that he considered to let troy go free but then a last minute troy threatened to tell him like to tell people what he did oh no oh no hit him with a hammer and did his usual Act. And afterwards, again, he drove um, Troy's body and buried it into the desert in Big Cottonwood Creek. Mm. Along with the his other. car, if they would search his car, oh man. No, right? That's so much evidence, yeah. Don't you just think, like, of all, like, oh man, if this was a case now, like, you would hope that they would easily be able to solve this after the first thing so yeah mm-hmm. i know mm-hmm. um okay so the last and final victim so this is the fifth victim and it's not even a month later so all the other ones he kind of waited like a year in between each uh-huh. and this one wasn't even a month later so i'm not sure exactly how to spell his name it's i think it's graham but it's g-r-a-e-m-e okay um cunningham He was a 13-year-old boy, and he was super excited because he had this camping trip on Thursday, July 14th, 1983. He was all packed and, like, super excited for the adventure. And, like, he kept talking about it over and over again to his parents and his friends. Like, he was so excited. Um, And guess who he was going camping with? Oh, no. He he wasn't going with Bishop. He was because... Arthur Gary Bishop was still a big brother. Oh, no. So he went camping, or he was meant to go camping, with a junior high school classmate and his adult chaperone, which was Roger Downs. Yikes. Yeah. So he obviously didn't make it to the camp out. He vanished from the neighborhood on Thursday afternoon. His parents were obviously quite shocked and like alarmed when he didn't report home for dinner. Um, And then again, the disappearance made statewide news because of the situation that was happening in Utah. Um, 
And this is the part that's so fucking sick. Roger Downs, a.k.a. Arthur Gary Bishop, called to offer Cunningham's mother any help that would, like, any way he could help her. Ew. And later he told the cops that I just wanted to help her. I didn't know how to tell her that I killed her son. Ew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, can you imagine being that mother and later realizing that? Yeah, not only realizing that you let your kid go or were going to let this kid go off with him, like camping, but also that he called you and offered mm-hmm. help. And you probably like cried a bit on the phone with him because you think right. he's like, it's just so fucked. It's so fucked. It really is. Ugh. Um. So basically a week passes by. Um, and the authorities, the cops, went through the same notions that they went through with everyone else. But finally, something clicked in the Salt Lake City Police Task Force where they were like, wait a minute. There's a child killer on the loose since 1979. We've seen the name Roger Downs a few times. Hmm. Maybe there's a connection. <laughs> These five murders. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. So they look into his name. And this is also around the same time, again, just to set the scene of horrible serial killers and especially child serial killers. Awful. This is about four years prior to John Wayne Gacy. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And he was trapped by the same mistake because basically he started like chatting and talking and getting a bit too arrogant. And then the cops in Texas were able to just like pick him up based off of the mistakes he was making because he let his guard down because he got too arrogant and was like, oh, this is so easy. I just killed 33 people. Mm-hmm. Like, I can just keep doing it again. So basically, that's kind of happened with Roger Downs. Like, he let his guard down with the last victim because the family knew him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the detectives were able to make a connection. So Sergeant Bruce White and Detective Stephen Smith went back to question Downs again. They didn't have any evidence, but they just knew, like, okay, something is up with this guy. He's been down on our notes and, like, written down his name has been on all across all these five cases. Like, something's got to be up. So, um, again, and also another thing that tipped the police off was police officers off was that Downs <laughs> was anxious to help find Graham Cunningham. And That's no telltale sign I've noticed from listening yep. to true crime is that very often the the um, perpetrator will insert themselves into the investigation because they want to know what cops know. They want to exactly. see which they are. They want to revisit the crime scene sometime even, or they, they want to just stay close to it because they feel like they have more control that way. Yep, and it totally made me think of, um, what was her name? The true crime? Oh, my God, the one that you did the episode on. Oh, for, oh Jodi Arias. Yeah, yeah, she did the same thing. Where she she like did. Called she the, to she called the cops and said, can I can I help in any way, right, uh, just a few hours after she Yeah, exactly. So that's, like, immediately what I thought of. I was like, oh, my God, it's like her. Yeah. So basically, um, Detective Don Bell, he – says, yeah, yeah, come on down, because, like, whenever Downs, Arthur Gary Bishop called to see, oh, can I help, blah, 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 um, Detective Don Bell was like, yeah, come on down. So 
he begins to pick apart his story and eventually he finds out what Arthur Bishop's real name is, looks it up and realizes, okay, he's had a warrant out for him for the last like five years or however many years because he embezzled this money. He was meant to go and like make restitution. He didn't, he bailed and now he's been living under a false name. And so when he started to pick his story apart and figured out his last name, by sundown, so just a few hours later, Bishop had confessed to five murders within the last <gasps> four years. Wow, that was quick. Yeah. And then the morning after his confession, um, Bishop led the police to the remains of his victims, three sets of skeletal remains near Cedar Fort, and two more recent corpses near Big Cottonwood Creek. Mm. Yeah. And at first, he didn't really say what his motive was for killing and then, you know, he first said, like, oh, he he killed only those molested victims who threatened to report him. But then later on, he admitted, and this is like he even admitted to um, Deseret News that they did this article on him, that he just had a thrill from murdering. Like, it gave him a thrill. And that the crimes are compulsive. And to quote him, he says, I'm glad they caught me because I do it again. Oh, yeah. Ew, I just got shivers. Exactly. So then this is the part where I think is really pivotal and why I chose to do the story, even though I find it horrendous and it's really difficult to hear. I mean, murder in general is difficult to hear, but when it involves young children, it's just heinous and Mm -hmm. absolutely horrible. But when I read this part, and luckily, I read it in the beginning because it helped me push forward. Mm. I just, ugh, okay. So after the public announcement of Bishop's arrest and confession, police were swamped with calls from parents who accused Bishop of molesting their children or the children of acquaintances over the past decade. None of them had taken step while Bishop was still at large and still doing what he was doing. They just mm-hmm. were completely silent about it. And they basically just didn't want to because he was known as being a Mormon, right? Well, and there's a lot of, yeah, that in the community where if something um, happens that is a criminal act, many times it's taken up with a bishopric or a stake presidency or something. And or they maybe if they think it's, quote unquote, shameful uh, because it's of a sexual nature, something that happened involving molestation, they don't want to take it to the cops for whatever shame, you know, that they're shamed by it or whatever. But that's so true that they they stay quiet about it. And if maybe these people would have spoken up beforehand, something could have been done. Yeah. Well, that's what, so basically Detective Captain John Pillai told Salt Lake Tribune, what I'd like to know is where were these people two and three years ago when we had nothing? Yep. Yep. So um, basically, so then the police, you know, they go to his house, they retrieve a 38 caliber revolver, a bloodstained mallet and hammer, dozens of photos depicting nude boys. Oh, God. Any of them refrained to exclude their faces, so you couldn't identify them. Um, mm. But obviously they knew um, who it was, and based on Bishop's confession, they also found a book recovered from his home that says 100 Ways to Disappear and Live Free. 
So he was like, you know, preparing and studying to be a fugitive. So he was charged with five counts of capital murder, five counts of kidnapping, two counts of forcible sexual assault, and one count of sexually abusing a minor. The latter charges applied only to his most recent victims in cases where forensic evidence of sexual assault were still available. Um, if the state would prove its case, then he, they would charge. Then the charge would be to send him to death. Okay. okay. So then. Deputy County Attorney Robert Stolt described Bishop in an interview with the Salt Lake Tribune as a ruthless killer and a sexual deviant possessed of a scheming, calculating, cunning mind. Bishop, meanwhile, in his statements to police, made the crime sound terribly simple. As Detective Bell later recalled, quoted in the Deseret News, Bishop told him, you can offer children anything and they'll go with you. Ugh. Yeah. What a piece of human garbage. Exactly. So remember that little thing I told you to put a pin in? Oh, his his younger brother. Yes. Exactly. So his younger brother was actually... So while Arthur was awaiting trial in Salt Lake City, he found out that his younger brother had been jailed for sexually abusing young boys around Provo. Oh, my God. Yeah. Apparently, the crimes were unrelated, but obviously something happened in their background is what they're saying. I, that. Yeah, I was just going to say there has to have been something that happened to them when they were young. Yep, exactly. Whoa. Um, yeah, it's just disgusting. And then this is, okay, you guys ready? So his defense attorney or his defense team, how mm-hmm. they try to win it is they said one of the culprits for the reasons as to why he murdered what he did, what he did was pornography. Oh so, no. Oh yeah. my God. No, I'm going to throw my computer right now. <laughs> Doesn't it make you so angry? <sighs> okay. yep. Yep. So he says, um, or sorry, it says they decided was pornography. An expert witness on the subject, Dr. Victor Klein, was called by the defense to, fest- to testify that porn had warped Bishop's mind to the extent that he could not resist his attraction to children or the killing urges that followed. It was a tune familiar from Ted Bundy's 11th hour confessions in 1979, trumpeted by conservative Christians in their campaign to, quote unquote, clean up America. I hate it so much. Here's a here's a freaking news flash, you guys. Most people have seen pornography and a lot of men watch pornography often, but guess what? They don't go kill little boys. There's exactly. no correlation between those two things at all. Yep. Uh, and it's even more sick because he plays up to this. So this is in an interview. They have an interview with Bishop and this is what he says. During my trial, Dr. Victor Klein testified about the adverse effects of pornography. As I listened to his explanations, I would discern how my own life desires escalated. These normal feelings became desensitized and they tend to act out when they have what they have seen. So it was with me. I am a homosexual pedophile convicted of murder and pornography was a determining factor in my downfall. Somehow I became sexually attracted to young boys and I would fantasize about them naked. I would need pictures that were more explicit and shortly the images became commonplace and acceptable. 
Finding and procuring sexually arousing materials became an obsession. For me, seeing pornography was like lighting a fuse on a stick of dynamite. I became stimulated and had to gratify my urges and explode. If pornographic material would have been unavailable to me in my early stages, it is most probable that my sexual activities would not have escalated to the degree that they did. He can fuck off. I have so many thoughts. Can I just say a couple of things? Okay. So how he says homosexual pedophile. Okay. If you're a pedophile, you're a pedophile and homosexuality has nothing to do with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is where I feel like a lot of times back in, especially like the seventies, eighties, even the nineties, they would say that like, if you were gay, you were quote unquote perverse and you were going to be a pedophile. And it's still a thing that like gay people have to get over like conservative Christians saying that to them. But the other thing is, There's a huge, huge difference here between regular, safe, consensual of like adult pornography versus child porn, which is not I don't call that porn. That's just like criminal abuse, a criminal abuse that's being recorded. Right. That's not. And so they're confusing these two things that are not even similar in any way to me like recording or taking a photo of a naked child in a sexual way that's a crime that's an that's abuse that's terrible but then just having like a sex tape is of with adults in it that's totally different and it's not like exactly it's not links you to the other it's like oh I watched a you know like Debbie does Dallas, and now all of a sudden I'm like, ooh, I gotta find pictures of young boys. No, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. And exactly what you said, pornography is something where you exchange, it's an exchange. You get money, you get a career, whatever, and it's with consent. If it has a child in there, it's not pornography, it's just child abuse. Like, that's all it is. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. And it gets even worse, so they, they taped some of his confession uh-huh. and they played it in court, just some of it. And basically while they're playing it, you know, the jurors are like either stone faced or they're crying because it's just so horrendous. Mm-hmm. And in the confession, Bishop is giggling. And sometimes he even would go into this like weird high pitched falsetto voice where he mimicked the dying boy's plea for mercy. Ugh, ew. Yeah. So Judge Jay Banks uh, made it official. He was sentenced to execution. And this is the part that I think is, I mean, it's all horrendous and disgusting, but this is an interesting um, point. He had the choice between execution by firing squad or lethal injection. He chose lethal injection. But then later on, I'm going to tell you the history behind why there's the option. Okay. Which is interesting. Okay. So he was sentenced to prison, or sorry, to execution, and he's on death row. And during that time, there were like so many bounties out for him, like so, like $5,000, $10,000 out to kill him and his brother. So basically, like it was quite intense for the guards because they were like trying to make sure that these rumors were just rumors and that people weren't actually going to try to kill Bishop. Mm-hmm. And so, and mm-hmm. during that time, so there were no attempts made to murder either of them, 
But at the time, Arthur was saying, Arthur, Gary Bishop, like, oh, this doesn't concern me. What's more important in his mind is rediscovering his religion. And he quotes, with great sadness and remorse, I realized that I allowed myself to be misled by Satan. Oh, my God. Uh You were right. I don't know if I didn't think I could feel any more (laughs) angry. But now I'm just, I'm raging. Like, my face is red. Like, take responsibility for your own shitty, awful, fucked up actions. And don't just say, Mm -hmm. oh, I was led by Satan. Exactly. Yep. And he, like, you know, he appears before the judge. He's trying to, like, act all sad and remorseful. So he reads a, a brief handwritten statement. And reflecting back on my life. I remember a lot of good things, but these are all overshadowed by the things I have done. I wish I could make restitution somehow, but I don't see how I can. I wish I could go back and change what had happened or that by giving my life, those five innocent lives could be restored. Again, I say that I'm truly sorry for all the anguish. And at that point, the judge was like unmoved, didn't give a fuck and scheduled his execution for June 10th, 1988. Yeah, bye. No one cares. Exactly. (laughs) So while he's at the prison waiting for his execution during this time, the the prison psychiatrist, uh, psychologist, sorry, Al Carlisle told the reporters that Bishop seemed to be a quote unquote new man. He had read the Book of Mormon 10 times from cover to cover during his four years in prison while using TV headphones to shield himself from the profanity of fellow inmates. Okay. Yeah. Ew. Oh, yeah, you're such a saint. You molested tons of children, and then you molested and killed five of them. And now because you're reading your Book of Mormon and not listening to swear words, you're a, you're you're gonna be you're a new man. Ugh. Exactly. And then he also said... This is the part that's great. So the psychologist says that he believes he will be going into the spirit world, that he'll be more peaceful there. And he doesn't believe he's been forgiven, but he believes he can continue to work on the other side on his problems. Yep. Well, that's what they teach, right? (laughs) Yep. Uh, So that's why he has no remorse. He just thinks like, oh, I fucked up. I, I won't get into heaven, but I'll be in the spirit world and I'll at least be able to like repent and work on things. It's fine. Yeah, he won't be sent to outer darkness like us for making this podcast. We are a lot worse than him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, so then, so I'm I'm closing up. I'm almost done. Sorry, this is a long one, but there was just, like, so much information in it. Oh, so good. Um, Okay, so remember how I said I'd come back to the little history lesson on why he had a choice between a firing squad and lethal injection? Uh Uh-huh. So the reason why is because... Utah is a law in Utah that allows its condemned prisoners a choice of death by firing squad. It's not a simple courtesy, but rather a nod to the early days of the Mormon church. In the 1850s, when leaders Brigham Young and Heber Kimball preached a doctrine of strict blood atonement. Yeah. I was hoping this was it. I was hoping. I. Yep. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. So it's so great. So. Um, one sermon by Kimball in December 1857 claimed that Judas did not hang himself as portrayed in the Bible, but rather that the remaining apostles kicked him until his bowels came out. Furthermore, the church taught in those days sinners could show repentance best by spilling their own blood 
and if they fail to do so, other members of the sect might be required to help. That doctrine is ignored today, except by extremists such as Mormon Manson, which is a whole other one we need to do. Yeah. I don't know if you know about him. So Irville LeBaron, LeBaron, sorry. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which listeners, we won't go into details now because I think this is a, another true crime episode mm-hmm. we can do. But it is all kind of sh- batshit crazy. Like I read into that one too, and it's just insane. Yeah. And this is amazing because this all goes back to Brigham Young teaching blood atonement mm-hmm. and teaching that it's okay to kill others when they sin because that's how they atone. And then, yeah, it's still in the. Is it still an option on Utah yeah. death row? Yeah, because of that Mormon teaching that you think that if your blood is spilled, then yep. you're atoned, right? Oh my God. Exactly. So. It, and it's still like, so basically Utah, yeah, it's provision for death by firing squad is a bloodletting ritual unrivaled anywhere else in the nation. It's only in Utah. <gasps> I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, wow. And oh. that choice still remains. Like to this day, you have the choice if you're on death row to either die by lethal injection or by firing squad. And there was a killer who in Utah chose the firing squad in 1977. Whoa. Yeah. Blood atonement. That's such a good connection, Sarah. You just, you just well, set my mind flying. Wow. I had to give, I have to definitely give credit to the Murderpedia because they made all these connections. This one, this one person, it was at the end I found and I was like, oh my God, blood atonement. <gasps> Are they going to do a connection? And when I read into it, I was like, wow. Yeah. So Murderpedia. It's got some crazy connections and shit, but it was That's great. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, Okay. So then, so on June 8th, 1988, this is the last time he, Bishop meets with his parents and it's his last hours and he spent them fasting and prayer. Gross. So he didn't (laughs) have a last meal? Nope. He chose that he, he opted not to have a last meal. He wanted to fast. How righteous. Yep. And his Mormon bishop, Heber Gertz, that's how you pronounce him, he came to visit him and said, it's unbelievable how calm and cool he is. Even the guards can't understand it. I've dealt with thousands of inmates in 33 years, and he's the most sorrowful and repentant and remorseful man I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Yeah. What a hard job to be the bishop of, uh, you know, people on death row or or heinous criminals like that and they want to become religious again and then you're their bishop. I just feel like that's such a hard place to put that oh. bishop in, you know? Yep. So gross. Um, okay. Yep. So basically the final day, as I mentioned, he fast, he reads the book of Mormon. He wrote a letter apologizing for his crimes to the families of the victims he was injected with sodium pentothal, pentothal, how do you pronounce that? And after nine long minutes, he was pronounced dead at 36. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. And yeah, basically he, in his letter, it just says, he's like, I want to offer again, my most profound and heartfelt apologies to my family my victims' families, I'm truly sorry. I've tried my best to empathize with their grief and devastation, and I hope they come to know of my concerns and prayers for them. 
gross. No. Like, imagine as a parent, you're hearing someone's, like, the killer of your child saying they're praying for you. No. You know, it's one thing to express remorse maybe at your sentencing or something. But leave the families alone after that point. Dude, like you took something from them that could never, ever, ever be replaced. And they're going to be haunted and tortured the rest of their lives because of what you did. And no amount of repenting, quote unquote, or praying or writing letters is going to do any good. I feel like it's even just harming. It's just trying to make himself feel better at that point. Like, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm better now. I'm righteous now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And they're like, it doesn't matter how many times you say you're sorry, you know? No. Your religion might tell you that you can repent this away, but your no amount of repentance is going to bring my little boy back. So No, exactly. And it's like just throwing salt in the wound, you it know? Is. Like yeah. just fuck off, you know? Like you've done yeah. this horrible, tragic like thing that can never surpass it. I mean, nothing can surpass like taking the life of a child no. and being that parent or that sibling, like going through that. And then for yeah. you to be like, Oh no, listen to me, I'm sorry. So that you can then make them feel better. It's like, fuck you. Like, no, I'm not ever going to make you feel better. No, Um, no. And this is the part where, again, I want to emphasize why I decided to to tell the story. Even though if you made it this far, you probably feel sick in your tummy like I did. And I still do. And it's just not something you want to ever hear or picture or imagine. But this, again, so years later... Scores of Utah parents would complain of Bishop molesting their children, but none came forward at the time, not (sighs) even when some of those led to murder. They were silent. Some perhaps warned their children to avoid his company, but none reached out to the police. Oh, that's so frustrating. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think of, you know, the the episode we've done on abducted in plain sight, yep. same shit, where these Mormon parents don't want their reputation ruined, or, you know, these women, unfortunately, who are Mormon women, Mormon moms, who were taught that, you know, if a man has a priesthood, he can't do any wrong. Yeah. So if my child's coming to me and saying, oh, this guy's a bit creepy, you know, he has the priesthood, so... Yeah. Well, and you're also not supposed to stir the pot in your nice little Mormon community. And you don't want to be the person that's, you know, oh, you don't know, maybe he's innocent. Why would you maybe possibly ruin his life? Yet you're warning your children to be careful around him. And you knew all along it was him and you didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. You need to say something. You know, you need to stir that pot. And exactly. And for some of you who are maybe listening and I have the same thought process again of like, this is a really heinous crime story. I don't, it's, it involves children. I just don't think I can, you know, I have the stomach to talk about it. Maybe things have changed. Well, you know, unfortunately they haven't in the Mormon church. We hear time after time after time about these stories of bishops or home teachers or primary teachers, whoever that are molesting children and the bishops are telling the parents, like, oh, don't don't go to the cops. We'll deal with it ourselves, blah, 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 like totally pushing it under the rug. It's still going on now, so much so that I actually re- I saw this on the news and it was like, I swear, Celestial Jesus slash Holy Ghost prompting me to even <laughs> tell the story. Um, and Katie, maybe you saw it, but there was a man. So this happened September 26, 2020. A man filmed himself molesting a child during a funeral at the Mormon church. Oh, gross. 
Whoa. So this happened in Salt Lake County. So this was a 21-year-old man who was filming himself molesting a four-year-old boy during funeral services at a Mormon church. Thomas Michael Wallen is his name. And apparently he has a number of felony charges. And (laughs) with three, he faces three counts of felony sexual exploitation of a minor and one count of aggravated sexual abuse of a child, a first degree felony. Whoa. And he is known for producing and distributing child pornography. And he was in the Mormon church. Whoa. That is so gross. Yep. And you guys, this was just a few days ago. So I just want to really drill this in and like the whole point of if you've again made it this far. Oh, if you know of any Mormons who have ever told you that their children were molested or that they think someone's a creep, like just just fucking listen to them and do something about it. Like, I don't give a fuck if the reputation is going to be ruined or not. Like, think of the children for fuck's Mm -hmm. sake. Like, I just can't wrap my head around that. I well, wouldn't even and, think you know, twice about it. And, and you know, I know this this is going kind of long, but this is very important. Right now, there's this big, uh, this big hype about child sex trafficking, especially amongst, like, Mormon people are sharing this on my social media, right? Like, hashtag save the children. And which, that's a great point, and there's a lot to be said about that and whatever, but I feel like they love to cling on to these conspiracy theories, you know, like, the Ikea conspiracy theory of sex trafficking or these things that are much more broad and vague or actually debunked instead of focusing in, look at your family and your neighborhood and possibly your church. And that's where it's happening that you can make a difference and you can be aware aware of what's going on and listen to the children. And if something's happening or if you feel weird about something or someone go to the proper authorities and and take care of it that way. Don't try to take care of it within your church because that doesn't usually ever help anything. Exactly. So. Go to the police. Go to your authorities. Like, you know, make sure your child is protected. Do yeah. not go to your fucking church leaders and tell them. Like, I mean, if if you've already gone to the police, you've already made, you know, a point to make sure your child is protected away from them, then you can go to the police or the bishop. And if they decide not to do anything, well, you know, fuck them, but at least you've gone to the proper authorities, but going to them first. No. And, and you've seen these videos you've seen when women try to say something about it in the church and, you know, the bishop or whoever makes them sit down or Mm -hmm. like tells them to be quiet. They protect these men and it's Mm -hmm. disgusting. It's absolutely fucking disgusting. Um, so yeah, that is a story wow. of Arthur Gary Bishop. Sarah, you did a spectacular job. That was, I was on my, the edge of my seat the whole time. I felt all the range of emotions and I think that it was, it was really troubling and obviously very disgusting and hard to listen to, but it was a really good topic to bring up and make people aware of that and because it's like you said, it's still an issue that needs to be addressed. So thank you. That was great. Oh, thanks for giving me all the feels. Oh, um, Sarah's storyteller. <laughs> we're both storytellers. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's all I have for this week. I mean, uh, if you guys like this, we can do the, the other one, the Mormon Manson, which is 
so fucked. It's insane. Yeah. That story exactly. too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the point being is that, you know, Mormons aren't perfect. And even though they love to hide these little dirty secrets that they have starting back in the day of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, welcome to the world of the internet, bitches. Like we're going to uncover this shit and people are starting to research and dissect and make connections and it's just not looking too good for them. So I think the more we uncover and talk about these issues and actually shed some light on the fact that it's not just happening 30 years ago, it's happening today still. And this is something yeah. that needs to be addressed. And yeah, and that starts with not having bishops interview children about sex and worthiness at a young age yeah. and being alone with their bishops at a young age. Yeah. Starting there. That's a good starting point for sure. I'm with yeah. you. Anyway, sorry guys, this was a long one. We ran no, over. Right <laughs> Everybody have a good week. We'll be back next week for some more stuff for you. <laughs> yeah, be on the lookout. Have a good week, everyone. Stay safe. Black lives still matter. Vote. Vote dot G O V, right? Vote. I believe so. Yeah. Um yeah. And be safe out there. There's still a pandemic. So take care of yourself. Take care of your mental health. And wash your hands and wear your damn mask. Bye. Bye.